So I, my name is Tilo. I'm a doctoral fellow here at the Center for Ethics, and I do work around ethics in the city. Uh, I have a background in human geography and political theory, and my primary interest is integrating those disciplines with a growing field of utopian studies that is now emerging in the last 20 years, um, um, with some great work happening there. So utopia, uh, just as a little background, has been something that's been a part of politics and political theory and studies of the city for a long time, but neglected for a whole bunch of reasons, which I'll get into briefly in my presentation. And, but I think it still uh, has something worthwhile to offer, and I'm interested in bringing those, those fields back together again. So um, the work I see myself doing in this presentation more generally is a mix between what you might call applied ethics or applied political theory, particularly to urban environments, so applying theories of politics, mostly distributive justice, but other sorts of ideas to, to urban environments, but also how we can think about revising our theories of justice in light of their spatialization. So what does, how do we think about, what, when we think about the cities and how we apply theories of justice in the spatial context and urban context, what things come out of that application that help us rethink those, those normative theories more generally. Um, and I think spatializing normative theories often is disruptive for those theories. And I'll get into that a little bit in my presentation as well. So it's almost de rigueur at this point in, urban, in an urban presentation to talk about how big cities are getting, right? We're living in an age of urbanization. It's often said they're growing quite rapidly here in North America, but more particularly, more especially in the developing world. Um, the cities in Canada and the U.S. are growing, or it's, as a percentage of the population, by about one percent every year. They're already about just over eighty percent of the total population in Canada and the U.S. live in cities. Um, it's growing much faster in China and India, for example, where that's growing at about two and a half percent. Um, China is already quite urban, and about 55% of the population lives in cities, while India is much more rural. But this is a trend throughout the world, people moving into cities, and a consequence of this is um, people living in closer and closer proximity to each other, right? And with that comes conflicts. We have to negotiate more and more people living in smaller and smaller, smaller spaces. Um, this puts significant stress on city infrastructures and all sorts of social relationships um, within urban environments. And one of the ways cities deal with this, or one of the ways neighborhoods and communities um, try to moderate the effects of this change is by putting in things like zoning ordinances, um, particularly density reg regulations that limit the amount of new development or new housing that can be in a particular place. So, and that's what this presentation is, is largely about. Um, I should be clear here before I continue that when I talk about communities, I use the term quite loosely. Um, it can mean sort of a city scale or a neighborhood scale. I generally take it to mean something, the, the group or the cohesive social group that's responsible for putting in place a particular policy around zoning or densification. So my presentation is not about what you might call the more objective, though again, that term that's contested, um, limits on density. So things like environmental limitations, what is supported by local ecology, things like infrastructure limitations, the things that put, I would call, an upper bound on the maximum supportable population in a region. But instead, what I'm looking or more interested in this presentation is thinking about um, aesthetic or lifestyle um, motivated density regulations. So the, th the things communities put in place to protect their character or to protect this speed of change in their environments or their lifestyle, you might say. So 
in particular, what I'm interested in is thinking about how we can balance what you might think of as a community's right to determine itself, the community's right to set its own rules, its own boundaries, to determine the way it governs itself, and balancing that against the need that we're seeing, the pressing need across all cities for more housing to accommodate a growing population, and particularly the need for more affordable housing that we see quite clearly in Toronto and in other places as well. Um, because these things often come into conflict. The desire for a community to protect a lifestyle or an existing way of life to limit population growth raises housing prices and places burdens on people outside of that community. Um, so I reformulate this idea into several key normative questions. First, is there an optimal for level of density? Uh, how much control should communities, local communities, have over local density regulations? And then what obligation should those communities have towards prospective residents or other non-members that are not part of that community, but otherwise might be affected by these regulations quite significantly. So it's useful to talk about um, a couple examples. So the first example I will get just to illustrate what I'm talking about here. Uh, the first is exclusionary zoning. So exclusionary zoning is something like um, a single family uh, zoning ordinances that specifically limit what type of buildings or dwellings can be put in place in a particular um, neighborhood or city. Single family zoning laws are quite common across North America. In fact, uh, Minnesota is the only city to have eliminated them entirely and only quite recently in 2018. Um, they place limits on all sorts of things, but primarily the types of dwellings that can be built, the size, the height, so on and so forth. They have a deeply racist history, particularly in the United States. They were put in place in the, mostly came to prominence in the early 1900s after the Supreme Court in 1917 struck down explicitly racial zoning laws by saying it was clearly un unconstitutional. And then communities came up with um, all sorts of other means to keep out what they uh, considered undesirable populations by requiring houses to be of a certain size. They, ca they caused those houses to be more expensive and then individuals and families with less income are much, much less able to afford moving into, um, moving into uh, those communities. And this, these ordinances still have that effect today. Home ownership amongst people of color in Canada and the United States is significantly lower than those of the white population. Um, and incomes are significantly lower as well. And these zoning ordinances, like exclusionary housing, single family zoning, have these still continuing um, discriminatory effect. And this is true also in Toronto, where over half, a study in 2016 said over half of um, the city is zoned for single family homes. So another example of something I'm talking about today is a recent policy change um, that happened in Toronto, and that's the move towards laneway housing in the city. This is something that's been discussed over the last several decades in the city. Uh, it's an idea to redevelop what are 2,400 back lanes running throughout the city core, covering about 250 um, kilometers of the city. You can see the map right there. Those are all the laneways in the city core. There's a whole bunch of them, often in concentrated in some of the most desirable neighborhoods. You have the downtown core, around the west end, uh, west of High Park, and the east end, the beaches, Leslieville, and so on. Um, and these seemed, because they're relatively open, they're quasi-streets, seemed ripe for new development and to produce new housing for the city. Um, however, these, um, this suggestion to implement a policy change to allow homeowners to build rental suites in their back of their homes on these laneways received significant policy pushback.
from local homeowners. Um, they were concerned about the impacts of new people moving in, the disruption due to development in their neighborhoods, um, so on and so forth. Often you would hear that they don't oppose laneway housing in principle, but it's just not right fit for their, for their neighborhood. Um, that would be a common refrain. That's a common refrain for all sorts of opposition to development projects. Uh, eventually the policy was passed last year, but with certain constraints um, put in place to placate um, a lot of these res neighborhood residents associations. So we are here facing a question. So actually one thing that's important to, uh, to mention here is that um, it's easy to think about this as um, to put, um, make, let's call them nimbiest um, homeowners um, the targets of criticism here. But we can also think of these concerns also as affecting low-income communities. Those people worried about new developments coming in, changing the character of their neighborhood, the movement of gentrification and eventual displacement. So it's important to note that this is not just um, a concern for high or low-income residents, it's a concern for, for everyone. And there seems to be something intuitively democratic about deferring to communities um, about changes that affect their local environment. They are perhaps the best judges about the about what should happen in their neighborhood. They are the ones most deeply affected by these changes. However, of course, still um, there are exclusionary effects of the policies that um, like densification and zoning restrictions. So, like I talked about, my interest is reconnect interests in reconnecting utopia, political theory, and urban studies. In the in the most recent years, um, utopian has utopianism has fallen to disrepute. It's been called authoritarian fantasies by liberals like Karl Popper. It's been criticized by Marx and Engels as being a distraction from the hard work of material struggle. Um, but in more, more recent years, um, authors like Lyman Tower Sargent, Ruth Levitas, and others have turned to um, the classics in utopian literature, Thomas More being one, Ernst Bloch, Karl Mannheim in the 20th century, and found that these crit criticisms that have been leveled against utopia are mostly incorrect, though they have some truth in certain contexts. But more, more often than not, the way utopian thinking oper 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 operationalizes itself is as um, a way to think about the world as uh, a place of provisional possibility, a place where we can create alternative futures for thinking about ourselves by, by contrasting ideal visions of the world um, with our contemporary reality as a form of, of critique. Um, but, um, and that's sort of where I see myself placing myself in this, in this context. So utopia um, does present itself in three different forms, um, all three of which I will engage with in this presentation. The first is sort of the classic stereotypical utopian blueprint. This is the ideal society, the ideal city, and this is the, the project we should implement. The second is as a process. Uh, David Harvey talks a lot about this in Spaces of Hope, um, about the market as a utopian process that's governed by ideal assumptions about how people act and how things will come about through its operation. You could say sort of the same thing about Marx's theory of history or other sorts of utopian social processes. Um, and the third approach that I will engage with most thoroughly today is as a methodology, as a methodological approach to studying politics. Um, and this takes, is um, pioneered by Ruth Levitas in Utopia's Method. And it's the idea that um, how we should go about or how we can go about 
examining our social world is first by engaging archaeology, by looking at the normative assumptions and structure that underpins our existing social reality. And then second, by constructing a new architecture, by taking those normative assumptions, challenging them, reformulating them, and building an alternative possible world, one that's not necessarily perfect, but one that is, might be better in many ways than our own, and contrasting that with existing reality and playing with those two those two ideas to perhaps move forward in a progressive or desirable way. So the remainder of my talk will be focused on this methodology, or be structured loosely around this methodological approach. First, I will engage in what Levitas calls archaeology. I'll produce some intuitions about the norm our normative principles around housing density. And then second, I will deconstruct the existing regime, you might call it density regime, in the housing market um, that governs density today. Second, um, I will engage in what Levitas again calls architecture by, by looking at Nozick's, what Nozick, Robert Nozick, um, the analytical philosopher uh, and great critic of Rawls, terms the framework for utopia and then rethinking some of his assumptions underpinning this and reformulating in a way I think is a little bit more helpful and more productive. And then um, the second thing um, in that final section, we'll be thinking about a compensation procedure. The second word procedure there is, is missing, unfortunately. I, I think I missed that. Um, and thinking about a compensation procedure for how to um, produce a more equal, more egalitarian density regime in, in contemporary cities, and some practical implications that result from that from that theory. So first, as, I, as promised, turning to the utopian planners um, and blueprint plans um, in the history of cities and te to tease out some normative assumptions we might have about density. I'll look at three of these utopian planners that were highly influential for the development of cities today, Ebenezer Howard, um, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Le Corbusier, uh, each of whom ex had very different ideas about how dense a city should be and what a city should look like. The first of these is Ebenezer Howard, who um, proposed a model in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, of a, what he called a garden city. And he believed that cities, it's important to have lots of green space and open space, and we should proceed with development such that um, cities are built with a central hub of about 60,000 people living in there, and then cities of about 30,000 people surrounding it in a ring with open green space, agricultural land parks in between uh, for the health and well-being of the population. This city, garden cities were, very few of them were built, some in England, Letch Letchworth being one, uh, this is a picture of Canberra in Australia on, on the, I guess on my right, that's um, built on Garden City principles. You can sort of see that form there. Um, and we can also see it, those principles in Toronto. On the left is Don Mills, which was a Garden City, uh, highly influenced by Garden City ideas. You see the ring of green space surrounding sort of a central node connected into the rest of the city. And then Greenbelt planning more generally, like the Ontario Greenbelt here, is itself based on, on Ebenezer Howard's principles. The second theorist is Frank Lloyd Wright, who had uh, proposed the Broad Acre City in the 1930s. This was a highly rural idea of life premised in Jeffersonian ideals about freedom and American democracy and the priority of rural life. Um, you can see sort of the, the headline behind his, his uh, model here, A New Freedom. Uh, he saw these, everyone, his proposal was every American family should be given one acre of land out of the National Park Trust. These communities should be connected primarily through roads for the automobile and also helicopters. Um, 
and believed that this sort of formulation would allow people maximum freedom, but also opportunity for creativity and exploration, and believed it would foster a high diversity of different ways of living. And there's another picture of Broadacre City, where you can see more clearly like the Great Plains, um, surrounded by um, little communities of housing. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's ideas have been most clearly seen in American suburbia, though in a much more compressed form. Um, community housing is clearly not one acre throughout American suburbia, but much more compressed, but still car dependent. The emphasis in the American dream about freedom and automobility is still is still highly influenced by by Frank Lloyd Wright. The final um, philosopher of the city we're talking about today is Le Corbusier, who saw um, who proposed a radiant city, a highly dense um, vision of a city um, that he believed well. So. Le Corbusier um, thought existing cities um, were far too dispersed out. There's a great story. He went to Manhattan in 1935, and the first thing he said was, far too small. Skyscrapers were too small, um, not big enough. There was no order to the city. We needed, and he proposed raising Manhattan so as to put identical skyscrapers linked by massive highways to house six million people. And he called this proposal for six million people. He also proposed a similar uh, project for Paris for three million people, destroying Paris much more significantly than the houseman ever did um, to rehouse the population there. Um, he called these like the Cartesian rational ordering, ordering of, of urban space. Here is a plan he had for Marseille. So you can see the hot giant highways, the uniform buildings, the symmetry, the geometry. Um, similar to Frank Lloyd Wright and Howard, Le Corbusier's ideas were rarely um, implemented in a grand scale. So there was a city in India heavily based on him, where uh, his ideas, where he was responsible for producing the master plan. But we can see his ideas most clearly in the contemporary urban landscape in the towers in the park, housing projects, and other developments that were prominent in the mid 1900s in Canada and the US. The top, you have a community in Manhattan. Um, there you see a community in the Bronx in the, in, the, in the U.S., a cooperative housing community, and that's St. Jamestown in Toronto. That has less of the, the sort of the shape, the kind of the cross shape that Le Corbusier proposed, but still similar principles, high skyscrapers surrounded by, by um, green space um, in a very dense way of living. So what do these plans all tell us? So they've all been highly influential, but never realized at the scale they imagined. There's no single idea of density that linked all of these plans. Um, so what we can derive from this and what we should derive from this is that ideas about density should be sensitive to diverse preferences because people have diverse preferences around how a city should look. And there's no idea that would be satisfactory or would make anyone happy. We can't imagine Frank Lloyd Wright being happy living in a Le Corbusier tower. We can't imagine Le Corbusier being happy living in the Frank Lloyd Wright's rural rural idealistic community. Um, second, um, we should also, no proposal should uh, result in the demolishing, the large-scale demolishing of existing communities such as proposed by Le Corbusier. It is extremely harmful and traumatic for communities, particularly lower-income communities that rely on place-based place networks of mutual support um, to demolish their existing structures. We saw this quite clearly in the slum clearing projects in the early 20th, 20th century in North America that disrupted very supportive uh, networks um, throughout American cities and Canadian cities. However, all three were also premised on 
egalitarian ideas about land ownership. Wright and Howard were explicitly and strongly influenced by uh, Henry George, who was a great land reformer of the late 20th or late 19th century, and Le Corbusier similarly proposed a cooperative land ownership scheme for his cities. Um, they all saw the ownership of land as the primary harm, or at least Wright and Howard did, the private ownership of land as primary harm, um, hurting, um, hurting the US, Canada, and North American cities, and particularly lower income communities, and believed that since land, land values, land ownership, and the values deriving from that were not a function of individual effort, they should be returned to, to uh, the communities at large. So from these observations, I derive three normative principles. The first, it's wrong to force people to move against their will. Second, communities should have substantial autonomy to determine local density levels um, in light of diverse preferences. And third, prospective residents have the same right to live in a community as existing residents. And I revised this in my most recent um, version of the presentation, which didn't get updated on this slide because I made some changes before I, uh, after I put it on the um, USB key to say that rather than prospective residents have the same right to live, I think a more accurate representation is that no one right, no one has more of a right to any particular spatial location than anyone else. So there's an equal entitlement to land because land is not derived from any person's individual person's effort. So turning our attention to the existing housing regime in North America, the first I, I, I propose that this housing regime or this density regime in North America is a function of two utopian processes. The first being that of the market, the free market. The housing density in any particular area is primarily a function of market forces. In places of high demand, typically, uh, usually density is higher. People live in smaller spaces. In places of low demand, typically density is lower. Um, people live in broader, in wider spaces because prices are, prices are typically lower. Under such conditions, housing is also determined, access to housing is determined by the ability to pay. The normative validity of this system is premised on the idea that the market is a fair and, and uh, efficient allocator of, of resources, that it produces better overall, better overall social goods than any other process. Goes back to Adam Smith's metaphor of the invisible hand and F.A. Hayek who talked about how the price system was the best way to coordinate vast social resources in a way that no single mind ever could. Um, this argument about the market as a utopian process is most famously articulated by Karl Polanyi, uh, who called it a stark utopia that would eventually destroy society unless it was constrained by, by, um, by government in a particular way, um, and also has been advanced by Harvey and Spaces of Hope and other places as well. Uh, it should be clear that when I mean utopia, I don't mean it here uh, in a pejorative sense necessarily, but rather I mean it, as I explained earlier in this presentation, as a idealized social process. So there's an idealized way the market will function, and if it functions in that way, it will produce a particular outcome. Um, and that process is not actually necessarily how the market will function in practice. So that's what I mean by, by a utopian process in this, in this um, context. You always have to be careful about you talking about utopia because it often sounds like you're being pejorative because people, there's such a entrenched um, idea in society that utopia is bad. Um, so I always have to be careful to articulate that I don't mean, by utopian process, I don't mean it's necessarily bad. I just mean it's an idealized um, process constructed around certain assumptions about, about a reality that don't necessarily hold in practice. Um, however, few would argue in favor of an entirely unregulated free market. Even Hayek, um, 
the great neoclassical economist, um, advocates intervention um, in the market for certain reasons to correct for monopoly and other uh, internalized externalities and other reasons. And this is true in the housing market as well. We have all sorts of regulations like tenant protections, um, zoning regulations, um, public housing, subsidization programs, mortgage regulations, so on and so forth, that constrain the market in a wide variety of ways. Um, so this brings us to the second utopian process that is relevant to what I call the density regime, the current density regime, and that is um, the idea of the self-autonomous self-governing or the autonomous self-governing community that can act without impact on those outside of it. Density regulations put in place by communities um, limit housing development relevant to the counterfactual outcome in the housing market. They constrain what is able to be built. They raise prices. This is quite. This is um, this is almost incontrovertibly true that zoning regulations do raise prices. It's just a matter of whether or not they produce other desirable social goods as a result of raising prices. Um, and most importantly, they serve to expect they protect current residents at the expense of prospective ones. They protect the lifestyle and aesthetic preferences of current residents while raising the raising the prices of entry for people who would wish to move into a to move into a region. And they do this not only in local communities but also in the surrounding region. By restricting general regional housing supply, they have spillover effects, local density re regulations that spillover effects into the housing prices in surrounding regions by depressing overall um, housing stock that's available. This operation or this um, this depends on an assumption, or the legitimacy of this depends on the assumption that the, the community can act um, to impose density regulations without um, a moral responsibility towards those outside of it, without um, a responsibility or at least a duty to consult people that live outside the community in these decisions. Um, and that they can exist, and they exist much like what you might think of as the ideal utopian island or autarkic community, um, they exist in isolation from the rest of the world and can operate freely without being constrained by the preferences or the concerns of, of people outside of the community. So, oh sorry, yeah, I didn't get to that, that slide. Um, so this um, density regime um, violates all three of the normative principles to varying degrees that I constructed earlier. It creates higher costs for housing, which will dislocate residents unable to pay for those rising rents. Um, it does limit, communities do not have unlimited autonomy, though they have significant autonomy over policies. This varies significantly by jurisdiction. Um, in Houston, there are no zoning regulations whatsoever. In San Francisco, there are very, very significant and severe zoning regulations um, to the extent which um, in public parks, you can't have shade in certain public parks, you can have shade one hour before or one hour after, no, before sunrise, before sunrise, no, yeah, before, after sunrise, before sunset. So you can enjoy the sunrise and the sunset in freedom without being shaded by high wind. Um, but there still seems, and um, finally, oh, sorry, and prospective residents face significantly, significantly more hurdles than existing ones in entry. Um, despite this, there still seems something intuitively compelling to deferring to local communities over zoning density regulations. So how can we negotiate this tension between um, the impacts of deferring to local communities over zoning regulations and what seems to be a legitimate process by consulting them in what they should 
what they desire to occur within the boundaries of, of their communities. An answer to this, I propose, um, is Nozick's framework for utopia, which comes at the end of Anarchy, State of Utopia. It's probably the least cited part of that book. Often secondary, secondary scholarship focuses on Nozick's idea of property rights um, and other aspects of his scholarship, and little attention is paid to the last 40 or so pages in, of the work. Uh, in this section, Nozick develops uh, an additional argument for the minimal state, which is the main, the main aim of his project, which he then, this time, quite interestingly, instead of taking premises from natural right and analytic philosophy, takes his premises from utopian theory and builds from the uh, independent argument for the minimal state from the ground up um, using the premises of utopian theory. So he wonders, uh, begins by wondering how we can realize utopia in a world where everyone has diverse preferences. He says, it says explicitly, how could we create a world for people as diverse, a single world as Wittgenstein, Picasso, Moses, Einstein, Hugh Hefner, Socrates, and he goes on and on and on, quite clearly trying to bring up the intuition that there's no single world or community that would make all these people equally or even somewhat happy. So if each person would prefer a different mix of social goods, he argues that the only, and we have no idea of discovering with any surety for any of us what the ideal life would be, uh, he advocates, um, he suggests the only viable alternative is an experiment in different ways of living, where individuals would be able to freely contract into voluntary associations by their own preferred norms and rules. All rational inhabitants in such a world would have the same rights of imagining and immigrating, imagining their ideal world and moving to it or creating it. Of, um, and of convincing other people to join with them um, in their society. Uh, over the time, these voluntary associations, Nozick says, would become more attractive and grow, while less attractive ones would fade away. Um, he calls this a framework for utopia or a meta-utopia, where many different utopias operate independently um, as little like atoms in a, broader, in a broader framework, governed by some loose structure of rules. Um, so for our purposes, this implies that communities should be freely able to determine their own density regulations, and individuals should be likely able, freely able to join and create the density regime that best suits their needs. However, this wouldn't, is not exactly possible in any meaningful sense in practice. Um, and in such, such an arrangement would actually, if put in place, would have the exact opposite consequences as Nozick suggests they would in theory. As Thomas Pogge explains, Nozick's framework would produce a tendency for monopoly in ways of life, Simil not dissimilar to the way that market produces a tendency for monopoly if unregulated. Um, the result would be little opportunity for experimentation and limited community diversity. Though each person would have the formal freedom to choose um, what way of life or what density regime they would have, um, in reality, this freedom would actually be quite constrained. They'd be limited by their access to resources, by education, um, and all sorts of other means. In particular, in particular concerning for our um, discussion here over density, is that the spatial world is very finite and very excludable. And the pre-existing residents have strong priority and strong um, ability to exclude over prospective residents. And are better able to exercise control over what they, over their density regime, what they would like, to, the world they would like to live in, than, than uh, prospective residents do. And furthermore, Nozick might reply that well, if someone can't move to a community they would want, they can build their own. This is extremely effort and resource intensive, 
and um, requires far more resources than knows it could be willing, willing to concede that it would. So what's the point of bringing up Nozick here? I think that Nozick, if he doesn't produce a theory that provides us anything more helpful than the existing structure of our world, uh, I think he still provides useful, use, a useful heuristic for thinking about how we should go about thinking about utopia and how we should go about thinking about density, um, and particularly for how we should determine the limits of self-determination. Um, in particular, that this right to, or the limit of self-determination for any voluntary community should be limited only by the ability of any every other voluntary community to exercise the same right on equal terms. So how could this idea be achieved in practice? Well, first, we can rule out two possibilities. First, um, not, it's quite obvious that not everyone can live in the same place at the same time. There's an upper limit to how many people can live in a neighborhood. Housing is finite and excludable. So we can dismiss offhand that everyone can live wherever they want at all times. Second, we shouldn't rule out any scheme that involves involuntary dislocation of residents, uh, even for egalitarian ends, though I might make exceptions in certain cases, but even for egalitarian ends, we should not forcefully dislocate people from their communities because this experience is so severely traumatic for, for individuals um, that it can be rarely ever, if ever, justified. Any solution must respect the ability and the right for people to continue living in the neighborhoods where they build their social relationships, their habits, their dispositions, so on and so forth. So the solution we're left with the most viable solution, I'd argue, that adheres to the three normative principles I developed earlier in my presentation is equalizing preferences, is a procedure for equalizing preferences for individuals between remaining where they are currently and where they would like to live. Producing a regime whereby individuals are ambivalent between whether they would move somewhere or whether they would have, they, and they have the sufficient support and resources to remain um, where they exist currently. So in Nozick's terms, uh, framework for utopia would mean providing whatever is necessary to any individual or community that is excluded from their preferred utopia such that they are able to instead construct their own ideal society where they are in a way that that society would be, uh, they would perceive that society to be equally preferable to wherever they would like to move. So if we are to do this, um, then communities must be responsible. If we are to or agree to this principle that preferences should be equalized across locations for individuals, um, then communities must be responsible for the external impacts of their actions. If a location is desirable such that more people would wish to live there than can be accommodated by the existing housing stock, then the community that lives there, if they are imposing density regulations that restricts housing development, faces a choice. They can either allow more housing to be built there to accommodate people that would like to move within environmental and infrastructure constraints, or they can compensate individuals that would otherwise wish to move there to raise their preferences such that they are equally happy remaining where they are relative to moving. This compensation must be sufficient to, ex to, ex to make all excluded prospective residents um, equal in their preferences between moving and remaining. It would be higher in places of low density but high demand and lower in places of high density and low demand to reflect the fact that the neighborhoods that are um, the most expensive are also the most desirable in the place where people, prospective residents, would most likely um, most want to move and the places where um, 
yeah, where housing is most um, needed if we take the preferences of prospective residents as a reliable guide. This procedure would allow communities the right to determine their own housing policies, so they can set whatever policies they want, but with the recognition that doing so has impacts on other people, with doing so with the idea that we need to compensate for the external impacts of our actions. This idea actually has um, an interesting precedent in the writings, interestingly enough, of Friedrich Hayek, who in the um, chapter on housing and town planning in the Constitution of Liberty talks about zoning regulations a little brief, quite briefly, and mentions that when a state implements um, zoning regulations in any particular region, um, they should be responsible for the market impacts of that, those regulations. They should compensate owners that are harmed by zoning regulations, but also take any increases in land value that homeowners receive as a result of density regulations or other sorts of uh, um, zoning policies for, um, for it as, a, as part of a, the social, as a social benefit or to compensate the owners that are harmed. So one concern here we might have is that low-income residents might be significantly harmed by such a procedure. That um, people that happen to live um, in very expensive neighborhoods or the neighborhoods that have come, become quite expensive recently might be overly burdened. Uh, in our discussion um, in Death and Life of Great, or The Urban Commonwealth, sorry, um, Margaret Cohn, uh, professor here at U of T, argues that poor people who wish to live in gentrifying neighborhoods are classic victims of what lucky egalitarians call bad price luck, um, and argues that they should not be held financially responsible for their decision to live in an expensive neighborhood because they moved there before those neighborhoods were expensive. They moved there and then subsequently formed attachments to those neighborhoods and should not be held accountable um, for those neighborhoods becoming more expensive, often as a result of their own efforts to improve or work, um, improve their neighborhoods. So to account for this consideration and to account for this possible discriminatory impact um, and to guarantee lower income communities the same control over development as wealthy communities um, and to ensure also that no one is forced to leave their community against their will, any density compensation mechanism must be mean sensitive and not and be not burdensome for anyone in any income bracket that would force them to relocate. For wealthy or poor, any sort of compensation procedure should not force anyone to be overly burdened by the cost they'd have to incur so that they'd have to leave their neighborhood. In a way, um, this realizes the, no, the normatively, most normatively appealing features of Nozick's framework for utopia. Uh, it, the framework that allows for the coexistence of voluntary self-governing communities where, in Nozick's words, none of the inhabitants of the world can imagine an alternative world where they would rather live in, which they believe would continue to exist if all rational inhabitants had the same rights of imagining and imperating, and does so while ensuring that the first normative all three normative principles are satisfied. No one is forced to move against their will, Communities have substantial autonomy to determine local density levels, excuse me, and prospective residents are treated equally to existing residents in the urban space. Finally, while local density regulations on aesthetic and lifestyle grounds would be solely within the domain of individual communities under such a framework, the state would still have a role to play 
by ensuring that any development is, could be supported by existing infrastructure and ecological constraints by setting an upper bound on what is supportable um, in any community based on existing conditions. And finally, um, how should, could we realize such a regime in practice? Realizing a procedure that takes into account everyone's preferences for where they would like to live and where they versus where they live currently and what would be necessary to equalize those preferences is in all likelihood an impossible task. Um, people are unaware of their preferences or unable to articulate them. People might lie or deceive about those preferences. Um, so we need to think if we wanted to implement such a policy, we need to think about how we could do so in a way that would reflect uh, most of the principles behind it um, while still being a possibility in our, in our existing world. Um, one way um, we could do this is by making property tax income sensitive and by raising the level of property tax significantly. Property tax already reflects the market price of housing, so it will be significantly higher in areas of low density and high demand. But the problem is that often lower income residents are forced to um, leave their house or their homes or not able to um, rent in a community because of um, the burdens on the homeowners, which then raises rents for them as well. Um, and therefore, any property tax should also be income sensitive, that such that no lower income, lower income person is forced to leave their home or leave their community due to the burdens of a taxation procedure. Um, a useful heuristic for what might be overly burdensome is the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation's definition of poor housing need which says that no family should ever spend over 30% of its before tax income on housing costs. So that might set an upper bound for what um, a, an individual or family might be required to pay for such a tax. This might mean that people living in very expensive neighborhoods with sprawling properties might face a very, very, very significant property tax bill for the privilege of living in those communities and the, and the um, burdens being placed on density regulations in their communities uh, where otherwise housing could be built in these desirable neighborhoods, but would likely keep costs very low for lower income uh, individuals and families. The revenue raised from such a tax should then be, I propose, redistributed uh, in the form of public investments into places with lower property values, with significant impact with, of the, with significant input sorry, from those local communities about how that money is spent with the idea being that this money will be redistributed from high demand, high value neighborhoods to neighborhoods that are not um, so valuable because, uh, and then where um, we can, if we take preferences as a useful guide are not so desirable in order to make those communities more desirable in order to make those places better places to live and where people would wish in the medium and the long term, if not the short term, to remain, to stay and to build um, their lives there. This idea, is in many ways close to um, an idea that was present at the beginning of this presentation, which is Henry Jordan's idea of the single tax, of um, the community, the state taking all um, value or being entitled to all values, uh, all land values, except for that produced directly by homeowners. Um, though we arrived at this, or I arrived at this, through a different means and with a different purpose by explicitly looking at housing density and um, the normative principles derived therefrom and how we can build a more fair and just density regime in our city and other cities uh, across the world going forward. Uh, thank you all for coming and I look forward to your questions.